0: Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank You. Thank You for gathering Your people all around the world to gather, to worship You, to hear from Your Word. And Father, we're just so thankful. We're thankful for Your Son who makes this possible, who gives us the bond we have together in Christ and for what He did for us. We ask now that as we break up and share that You would give each of us just a real sincere... Heart for one another, and what's going on in each other's lives, and what we may pray honestly and openly with one another, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen A while back it's been probably a year ago. I went through a class taught by Pastor Steve on how to teach through a text expositorily, and one of the things he told us was to be open, to be honest, to use personal illustrations. But to be careful and not expose yourself or reveal your sin to the point that your listeners lose respect for you, thereby annulling your teaching. And this morning as we begin, I'm going to be really honest with you about something, and I hope that that doesn't happen. What we're going to talk about this morning is a problem for me. As I think about my life as a Christian going on 40 years, as I think about the ways I've matured in my faith, the amazing growth I've had in many areas, yet there's still an area that I struggle with. There's an area that's still not where it should be. And now you're probably wondering what that is. What terrible thing am I going to share with you? Don't get too excited. What I'm going to tell you probably applies to you as well. I don't think I'm alone. I'm pretty confident that A lot of Christians struggle with this. So what I'm going to tell you and what we're going to look at this morning and several times that I get to teach over the summer is the topic of and the discipline of prayer. How many people here this morning are completely satisfied with your prayer life? You can raise your hand if you want to. I want to get to know you better. I didn't see many hands. Actually, I didn't see any. But I don't think I'm alone then in this. Pastor Steve even has been burdened in this area for our church. If you have been here on his State of the Church addresses, you realize that he's talked about this topic more than once over the last few years. And Lakeside's not alone. When you talk to pastors and you read church surveys, you find that prayer services are the poorest attended services. Hundreds. Or thousands of people will come out to hear a good pastor speak, to go to a Christian concert, or even attend an evening service. But then when a prayer service comes around, there's sometimes very few people there. And that's been on my mind lately. I've been struggling with prayer in my own prayer life. But how many people think prayer is important? How many think God answers prayer? Almost all of you. I think all of you raised your hands. I know that we all pray. I know that we all believe it's important that we would say that God answers prayer. Then why don't we do it more? Why is it that we still are not happy about where we are in our prayer life? I've been struggling with these questions personally. Terry and I have discussed it together. So my goal is to change that in my life and Lord willing, maybe in a few others. So what we're going to do today and the next several times I get the opportunity to teach is look at the topic of prayer in the Bible. My goal is that with the help of the Holy Spirit and by using the Word of God, we will light a fire under our prayer lives, in my prayer life. The passage I chose today is Acts chapter 12, if you want to be turning there. There are a lot of places we could begin to explore this topic, but I've chosen to start by going back to the days of the early church. And so we're going to pick up the life of the early church in chapter 12 of Acts, and we're going to read about a time when the early church was found praying. Now this is probably a very familiar story to you, but there's a lot to learn here about prayer. We're going to look at this account in four sections. We're going to see... The reason for prayer in verses 1 through 4. The responsibility in prayer in verse 5. The result of prayer in verses 6 through 10. And the reaction to answered prayer in 11 through 19. So let's begin by reading verses 1 through 4 and see the reason for prayer. Acts chapter 12 beginning in verse 1. Now about that time Herod the king laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them. And he had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. When he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. Now it was during the days of unleavened bread. When he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out before the people So we see there are a lot of reasons for for prayer, but as we enter upon this scene in the life of the early church, we find a specific thing going on that leads to prayer and what is it? Persecution. The persecution is at the hands of King Herod. And if you know anything about the Herods, you know that this is Herod Agrippa the I. He's the grandson of Herod the Great. Herod the Great was a really ruthless leader. He killed several of his own family members. But he's best known for the killing of the innocent young male children near Bethlehem as he tried to kill the king of the Jews was coming. and It was a baby and he had all the babies killed. This is Herod the Great's grandson, Herod Agrippa I. Now he had an up and down relationship with Rome. Sometimes he was in favor, sometimes he wasn't. Tiberius Caesar even had him thrown into prison once because of comments that he had made about him. But after Tiberius' death, when he got out of prison, Herod Agrippa was made the ruler over northern Palestine, and eventually Judea and Samaria were added, and so then he has this large territory that was the largest since his grandfather's reign 50 years ago. But because of this precarious relationship that he had with Rome, it was imperative that he stay in good relations with the Jewish leaders. One of the ways he found he could accomplish this was to persecute the Christians because the Jews hated him too, especially their leaders. Verse 2 tells us that he had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. Now, the fact that he was put to death with a sword specifically tells us that he was probably accused and found guilty of leading the people astray to follow false gods. So James then becomes the first martyred apostle. Verse 3 tells us that this persecution and his goal of staying in good graces with the Jews was working. When a politician or a ruler does something that he finds pleases the people, what does he do? More of it. That's exactly right. Verse 3 says, when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to have Peter arrested. Herod was probably thinking, if killing James pleased them, then I might as well kill Peter too. That should really please him. He's the leader right now of this movement. So Herod proceeds to put him into prison with four squads of soldiers guarding him. Verse 4 goes on to say that two squads were chained to him in the cell with him and probably two more outside the door. The other squads were rotating in and out to make sure they were always be on him 24 hours a day. Going overboard a little bit, don't you think? I'm wondering if Peter's past escape from prison had anything to do with that. But this is the situation. It seems on the surface, at the very minimum, desperate situation, doesn't it? One of the leaders, James, was dead, murdered. Now Peter, the head of the church, was in prison, likely to be executed very soon. This looked like it could be the beginning of the end of Christianity, in a sense. That's the situation. That's why they were gathered together to pray. Now, verse 5 begins, So Peter was kept in prison. Now, the next phrase is very exciting. The next phrase is so powerful. The next phrase changes everything. If there's anything in Scripture that should get your attention, if you remember anything at all about this lesson, this is it. This next phrase. So, Peter was kept in prison. What's the next word? But. But. James is dead. Harris is on the rampage. Peter's in prison, chained to guards, probably going to be executed. But. But what? But prayer for him was being made fervently by the church to God. This statement changes everything. When someone's telling you a story in the middle of it, he says, but, what does that mean? It means something's going to happen that's different than what I've just said. The word but means there's something coming in contrast to what I've already said. It would be nice outside if the temperature would be in the 70s this week, but it'll probably be around 95 I'm going to eat really well in Haiti this week. That's what I want to do, but probably won't. Probably eat a lot of rice. The word but introduces something that's going to be in contrast with what was already said. In this case, James was killed, Peter was in prison, but the church was praying. This simple statement tells me that prayer changes things. That prayer is not just for our benefit. It is for our benefit. But it also changes things. But the church was praying. That tells me that something's going to happen in contrast to what he just, the picture that he just painted was. And verse 5 tells us that prayer was being made fervently by the church of God. Now there's a lot of passages on prayer. A lot of things we can discuss and learn about prayer. But specifically in this section of passage we're going to see three responsibilities that we have in prayer. We've seen what caused them to pray. Now we're going to see the responsibility we have in verse 5. And the first thing I see is that we are to pray corporately. We can and we should pray individually. Those of us who are married should pray as a couple. But here, this group of people meeting here in this house was called the church. Remember, they didn't have church buildings yet. They were meeting as a body of believers in this home as the church fellowship to pray. And I went back just out of curiosity and kind of scanned through the book of Acts and to see how many times I could find the church praying corporately. It was pretty phenomenal. Turn back with me to Acts chapter 1. We'll just briefly go through a few verses. Acts chapter 1. Down at verse 13 and 14, it says, "...when they had entered the city, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, that is Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. These all, with one mind, were continually devoting themselves to prayer, along with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers." So soon after the Lord has risen, we find 120 gathered in the upper room on the day of Pentecost doing what? Praying. With one accord, it says. Go on down to verse 24. Verse 24 says, And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all men, show which one of these two you have chosen. And what they're talking about there is they are looking for Judas' replacement. And they are praying for wisdom and knowing who that should be. Go over to chapter 2. Look at verse 42 of chapter 2. We find them again gathered together. Verse 42 says, They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. So that's after Peter's first sermon. We find many were coming to the Lord and believing in Him. And verse 42 tells us what they were doing. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, and to breaking of bread, and to prayer. Turn over to Acts chapter 4, down at verse 24. 24 through about 30 is an is a actual recording of a prayer, but it begins, And when they heard this, they lifted their voices to God with one accord and said, And then you have, an actual prayer listed. And then down at verse 31, when the prayer ended, it says, And when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with the Word of God with boldness. When Peter and John had reported the Sanhedrin's threats, those gathered cried out to God in one accord for boldness, and when the place was shaken when they got done praying. Turn over to Acts chapter 6. This is the account of... A problem arose in... This is the instigation of the deacons. Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because of their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. So the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, It is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, my brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we must put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. The statement found approval with the whole congregation, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenius, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. And these they brought before the apostles, and after praying, they laid their hands on them. Here we find the church praying over the seven men appointed to serve as deacons, We'll stop here, but you get a feel for the pattern that's developing within the early church. If you continue reading in Acts, you'll continue to see references of the early church praying corporately as well as individually. I was impressed at how many times corporate prayer is mentioned. Another responsibility we have in prayer that I see highlighted in these, here in this passage is that it is intentional. I don't think they were meeting to pray generally about just to be anything. They were there intentionally to pray about the persecution that was going on. Because James had been killed, because Peter was in prison, they then called a prayer meeting. So they were specifically and intentionally there to pray. And many of the verses we just read through in Acts, if you think about what they were praying about, who would they replace Judas with? Who would they select to feed the widows? On one occasion, they were praying for boldness. It's okay to meet and just have a general prayer meeting, but I think you can specifically from Scripture see that there's times when we should gather together to pray specifically and intentionally for certain things. The third thing I see as far as the responsibility out of verse 5 is that we are to pray fervently. But the church was praying how? Fervently to God. What picture comes to mind when you hear the word fervently? Deliberate? Deliberate. Christ? Christ. Desperately? Desperately. Earnestly. Earnestly? Passionately? All of those are descriptive words that kind of give us a picture of what it means to pray fervently. The church wasn't saying grace the way we do before meals, were they? They weren't praying a bedtime prayer with their children the way we might think about it. There was something different about praying fervently to God. The same word translated fervently here in Acts is also used by Luke to describe Jesus' prayer in the garden right before His crucifixion. Turn over to Luke chapter 22. We'll read that account. Luke chapter 22 Verses 41 through 44. And Luke tells us, And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and began to pray, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Not yet not my will, but yours be done. Now an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him, and being in agony, he was praying very fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood. Falling down upon the ground. Does that give you a description of fervency? Most of you are probably familiar with the scripture in James 5.16. You don't need to turn there. You probably have a lot of it. You have it memorized. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Many of you memorize that in King James like I did. Availeth much or accomplishes much. After that saying, James goes on to give an example of a man that prayed like that. He said, Elijah prayed fervently that it wouldn't rain, and it didn't. Now, when I come across scriptures like that, that's you know talking about something that happened in the Old Testament, so I wanted to go back and read about that fervent prayer. So I went back to 1 Kings, and do you know that it's not there? <laughs> That prayer that Elijah prayed that it wouldn't rain is not recorded in 1 Kings. And I wanted to to read his fervent prayer, but it wasn't there. For some reason, we don't have a record of this prayer. But we do have a record of the prayer where he called for the rain to begin that ended the drought. That happens after he called down the fire from heaven to defeat the Baal worshipers. This was recorded in 1 Kings 18. I'm going to read that account because it said Elijah was a man like us and he prayed fervently. So I'm assuming he prayed fervently more than just that one time. Turn to 1 Kings 18, if you will, and I'll read verses 41 through 45. Starting in verse 41, now Elijah said to Ahab, go up, eat and drink, for there is the sound of the roar of a heavy shower. So Ahab went up to eat and drink, but Elijah went up to the top of Carmel. And he crouched down on the earth and put his face between his knees. And he said to the servant, go up now, look toward the sea. So he went up and looked and said, there's nothing. And he said, go back seven times. It came about at the seventh time that he said, behold, a cloud as small as a man's hand is coming up from the sea. And he said, go up, say to Ahab, prepare your chariot and go down so that the heavy shower does not stop you. In a little while, the sky grew black with clouds and wind, and there was a heavy shower, and Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. I think we see an example of fervent prayer here. I think it's shown in the posture of Elijah. What did it say about his posture for prayer? It didn't say he kneeled or he bowed. It says he crouched on the earth and put his face between his knees. Don't ask me to demonstrate this. I don't think my body bends like that. King James actually says that he cast himself down onto the earth. The point is, I think there's a deep reverence being shown here. I think it's an attitude of humility and fear and reverence. But it's more than that, too. Like I said, the King James says he cast himself down. There's an intensity in that expression. There's passion in it. And I think fervency in prayer is more than just an attitude, though. The term used, when you go back and look it up, also implies persistence. Elisha had a promise from God that it would rain, but it didn't stop him from praying. When you read verses 43 and 44 again, you see him praying sending him out to look for the rain off in the future. He comes back and says, I don't see any storm clouds. He continues to pray. He sends him back. This was repeated. How many times does it say it was repeated? Seven times this was repeated. We read over that like this just happened in a few seconds or a couple minutes. It probably was several hours of him running off into the distance and looking for the rain and waiting and coming back and him praying some more and sending him back. This is something that was more not just an attitude, but to show some persistence in his prayer. You'll remember that when Elijah raised a young boy from the dead, the answer to that prayer didn't come immediately either. He had to pray three times for that to happen. But here the delay is more than doubled, yet there's no sign or indication that he ever grew discouraged or became disheartened. He had a word from God and he simply prayed until it had happened. He knew the answer was going to come. So I asked myself this question when I was preparing this, and I ask you, do I pray fervently with deep agony of soul? How often do I pray like that? How often am I that persistent in prayer? Have you ever prayed like that? What causes someone to pray like this, the verses that we are looking at, versus an ordinary prayer? It's non-fervent. What, what causes fervency in prayer? Desperation. Desperation. That's exactly what I thought of. Desperation. When the doctor says the word cancer. When a late night phone call comes and says accident. When the loss is great. When the trial is overwhelming. When the obstacle is too big. I think that's when we're at the end of our ropes. And we succumb to fervency in prayer. I'm convicted that my problem is not that I don't know how to pray fervently. I know how. I've done it. I'm convicted that I am not compelled to do it often enough. What about you? What does that say about us? We've seen the reason for prayer, the responsibility of prayer. Now we see the result of prayer. Look at verses 6 through 10. Chapter? On the very night when Herod was about to bring him forward, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains. And guards in front of the door were watching over the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared, and a light shone in the cell. And he struck Peter's side and woke him up, saying, Get up quickly. And his chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Gird yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and continued to follow, and he did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate that leads into the city, which opened for them by itself. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel departed from him. Verse 6 tells us Peter is in prison, chained to two guards, and what's he doing? Sleeping. Now, that doesn't have anything to do with the prayer, but think about what that tells us. How can he have that kind of peace? He has that kind of peace because he knows the Lord and he understands the sovereignty of the Lord. Peter has peace even though he's in prison and his execution is probably being planned to be carried out right after the feast is over. What's the worst thing that can happen to him? He can be martyred and go to join the Lord. Remember what the Apostle Paul said? To live as Christ, to die as gain. Paul had peace. Peter had peace. And we can too. But back to our discussion about prayer. Put yourself in their place. The believers who were back in the house praying. How do you think they must have felt? Desperate. James had been executed. Peter was in prison. They knew what Herod was capable of. It was a very serious situation. But prayer was being made fervently by the church. And what was the result? miraculous intervention by God and he's miraculously uh, let go out of prison. The angel uh, led him right past one guard and then the other. We don't know if they were asleep or if there was just a miraculously passed by unseen. We don't know. The angel led him to a gate which separated the prison out of the compound from the city and scripture says the gate just opened by itself. They went out in the street, proceeded down the street a ways and then the angel disappeared. God miraculously answered their prayers. Now, this begs the question, does God answer prayers today? Everybody says yes. We all answer yes. But do we really believe it in the strong sense of the word? When we pray, are we always believing that God's going to answer our prayers? I know people who are praying for some really serious things. Is there really hope that God will do a miracle? Of course there is. Will he answer prayer with that kind of power? He does. He still does. Go back to our passage in James 5, 6. Can fervent prayer call out God's power today? Or is it just something that happened in the first century? I don't believe it is. James tells us in that verse that Elijah was a man like us. And he did this. And God answered him. Why did he go to the trouble of saying, God, Elijah was a man like us? He did that on purpose. And I think that talks to us. That speaks to us. We don't have to have a limit, our examples to answered prayer in the Bible. I started going back and I started to list all these answered prayers in the Bible and I thought, well, but then if somebody's argument is that was then, this is now, that wouldn't hold weight with them, although it should. But... I started thinking about history, and I read through all counts of how prayers have been answered throughout history, dramatic prayers that have been answered. And I've got a bunch of them listed here, but I'm not going to have time to even share them all. I'm going to share something more personal that just has happened recently, just to give you hope if you've been praying for something and have not really felt God answering it in the way you want you all are all aware of the young couple that lost the 11-year-old boy by the gunshot wounds, Pastor Steve, after prayer. That was our son-in-law's sister's little boy. And when we got that news, we were devastated. You know, the prayer was, he's basically on life support in the hospital. And, of course, our immediate reaction is to pray that he would be saved, that he would have a miracle performed. And... That's the way we prayed immediately. But later that night when Terry and I were in the getting ready for bed and we stopped to pray, and our concern became more about the parents. Now, to give you a little background, this couple and our son-in-law and all, the, all their family of um, 14 kids um, were raised in the apostolic church. It's a very legalistic church. The men sit on one side. The women sit on the other. Um, They have to marry in the church. They don't even get to meet their husband or wife. They have to go to the preacher and ask for permission to marry, and they go to them. It's it's on the verge of being a cult. It's that legalistic. And this is the church that this whole family was raised in. Our son-in-law came out of that church and got saved at college, married our daughter. Then Stephen, which many of you know, moved down here. He got saved it's been a progression of them witnessing to their other family well Rachel and Casey his sister Rachel and Casey of the husband who lost his child have been saved a year or two and they're still attending this church trying to minister within this apostolic church and you can imagine they are so on fire for the lord that he decides he's going to be in ministry and he not knowing how they were going to do it enrolls to go to master seminary because they started listening to John MacArthur preach and teach. And they don't know how they're going to do it. But they have sold their house. They've packed up. they moved in with their grandparents on their way to go to school. And then this happens. And being from this front mindset of legalism and rules and just a, not a real good theology about God. Some of the things that were going through his mind was is God is punishing me. And he doesn't want me to do this. And so he was starting to waver and doubt what was going on in his life. So Terry and I were praying specifically that they would be encouraged, that their faith would not be deterred, that this would draw them closer to the Lord. And I know many other people were praying that. I don't see LaRue here. Oh, there's LaRue. LaRue got three different emails or texts from different people about this young boy. It took her a while to put it together, I think, that it was the same boy that Terry was asking to pray for. One of them even came from a different state, didn't it? Two Two different states. She got emails. So I'm saying, okay, you could start listing the scenario of what's going on, and then you could say, but the church of God was praying. And we have seen so many miraculously answers to prayer in this young family's life because of I think the church of God was praying. Our pastor made a phone call to Phil Johnson. Phil Johnson talked to John MacArthur. John MacArthur called this young man. He doesn't know who he is. He's never met him. And he gets a phone call from John MacArthur who encourages him and says things like, this is every parent's dream is for their child to be in heaven to know they're in heaven. You know, that's what every good Christian parent wants for their child. He said things like that to them that encouraged them. Several other um, professors at Master Seminary called. They sent flowers. Um, they don't know this family. They've never met them before in their life. Casey, who had been out there on some type of orientation looking at the campus, met a guy who was from a Mennonite home who kind of had a similar background to his. And he came to the Lord on his tractor because he had a radio on his tractor that he wasn't supposed to have that somebody forgot to take out. And he started listening to John MacArthur on his tractor and got saved. And now he's at Master Seminary. This young man flew to the funeral from California to be there. All of this was working to encourage this young family that they were on the right path and that this tragedy would not derail them. I could go on and on. I can't remember how many different answers to prayer happened to encourage this family. Even the funeral—they were dreading the funeral um, because a funeral in this church is horrible. <laughs> there's no theology. There's no good preaching. It's just—it's—it's. It's, Angie and Emil had been to a couple of funerals there, and it's just awful. Well the way God worked that out there was a group of people from Lakeside gathered together praying for the funeral of the, because they were so concerned about it and they were in a different state their church denomination was in Missouri they're now in Ohio where their grandparents lived and they asked that their preachers from back in Missouri or Michigan I can't remember this Michigan I'm sorry Michigan they asked that their their people back in Michigan could come in and these are not trained Theologians. These are people in the church that somebody said you'd be a good preacher. You'd be a good preacher, and they just get up and they open the Bible and flip through and just talk. And they they wanted. They didn't know Caleb. The people there didn't. So they asked if they could come in from their home church, and they don't normally allow that. They did, and they allow these people. Comes to find out, Casey had been meeting with these other men on Friday morning in a Bible study, leading these preachers in Bible study. They came and delivered the message and people there said it was the first time the gospel's ever been presented in that church ever. And it was clearly articulated at the funeral. Does God still answer prayer today? Yes, He does, absolutely. In our text this morning, God specifically answered their prayer of deliverance and He still does today. But that brings us to their reaction. Look at verses 11 through 19. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I know for sure that the Lord has sent forth his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all the Jewish people were expecting. And when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who was also called Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. When he knocked at the door of the gate, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. When she recognized Peter's voice, because of her joy, she did not open the gate. But she ran in and announced that Peter was standing in front of the gate. They said to her, You're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. They kept saying, it's his angel. But Peter continued knocking. And when they had opened the door, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had led him out of prison. And he said, report these things to James and the brethren. Then he left and went to another place. Now when day came, there was no small disturbance among the soldiers. as What could have become of Peter? When Herod had searched for him and found him, he examined the guards in order that they be led away to execution. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and was spending time there. Now this picture of the servant girl wrote an answer in the door and being so overjoyed, surprised, run back in. And that always brings a smile and a laugh to our face. I can see this happening in my mind. She's so excited that she'd run back to tell the other people and they don't even let him in. When they finally let him in, verse 16 says that they were amazed. And much has been made about this, that they were praying for Peter, but when their prayers were answered, they were surprised. You wonder how they were praying. If they were like me, they may have been praying, God, please spare Peter's life. Give him peace at this difficult time. And if it be your will, maybe Herod will find him innocent and let him go. But you wonder how many of them really thought that was going to happen. Remember, James had just been killed. The thing is, he'd been set free before. They should have had faith. He's escaped from prison once before with the other apostles. You can read about that in chapter 5. But sometimes, do you pray? Be honest. Do you pray and not really expect God to answer it? I mean, you know He has the ability to do it, but are you really expecting Him to answer it? Prayer does work. Prayer changes things. I have know that. I've witnessed it in my long life. Sometimes we're surprised at His answers. I had listed, when I went through this, I listed a lot of prayers that have been answered in my life. It was a good thing to do just to kind of give me encouragement to list go through and list all the prayers that God has answered for me I've shared many of them with you before about our kids and different things but there was one I don't know if I've ever shared it was the first one on my list the first answer to prayer that I can remember praying and I was around I don't know I I know I was in eighth grade What's that make me 13 14 I was in eighth grade and there was this pretty girl that sat in front of me, and I prayed that I could marry her. Now I'm from Kentucky, and I get accused of being Tennessee, but I'm from Kentucky. We get married young there, but I was 19 before I got married. But do you know that the girl I prayed to marry is Carrie, and God answered that prayer six or seven years later. I prayed at one time. I wasn't expecting him really to answer it. It was just a kind of a longing, I guess you'd say. But God chose to answer that prayer. The church was praying for Peter. And God in His grace answered their prayer in a way that surprised him. Isn't God good? Our reaction should not be one of surprise. It should be expected. It should be praise and thanksgiving. I thank God almost every day for answering my prayer 13 years ago old little boy's prayer this passage is a textbook on the power of prayer but it's also a testimony that it's impossible to fight God if you went on and read you would see that in a few paragraphs later Herod ends up dying and being eaten by worms and Peter's free so it starts out the passage with Herod on the throne James dead and Peter in prison and it ends with Peter being free the church moving forward and Herod dead It's a reminder that we can't fight God. But if you don't remember anything else about this lesson, I hope you'll remember this. Peter was in prison, but the church of God was fervently praying. It's my prayer that I, that we, become more fervent in our prayer life. That we will have more and more opportunities to share stories when in the midst of it we can interject the words, but I was praying or we were praying and everything changed. But as I end, I want to say this. God doesn't view our prayer as a checkbook. We don't just write checks and God honors them. We don't just pray and God answers. There's a lot more to discuss on this subject. In two weeks after I return from my trip from Haiti, we'll be back and we're going to look at reasons, specific reasons why God does and doesn't answer our prayers. Let's pray. Father, thank You for our time together this morning. Thank You that You are a God who allows us to come to You and that You in Your wisdom and sovereignty, Father, that You providentially work out Your plan in the lives of people through our prayers. It's something I don't fully understand, but Father, we marvel at how You choose to work and choose to use us in Your plans. And we pray that You would light a fire upon our prayer life, that we would just grown to know You more, to spend more time with You, and to be open and honest with You in our communications and that we would be bold in our prayers knowing that You love us and choose, Father, to answer our prayers that are according to Your will. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.